God, we uh, are grateful that you have given us uh, not just words on a page called the Bible, but you've given us um, your word. You've given us uh, your speaking voice. And as we've said, we believe your presence is here among us. And we believe your Holy Spirit is here among us to talk to us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to remind us, to teach us so we can become the kind of men and women that you've asked us to be, and that is full of the life of Jesus. Ask us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, topic today is great line from great pep talks, all right? Uh, actually, the word pep, I looked this up the other day. Pep talk comes because in the 100, 100 or so years ago, 150 years ago, um, it was related to the word pepper because pepper seemed to be zesty and enlivening and things like that. That's where we good pep talk. So that's your linguistic lesson for the day. Anyway, I'm going to put a line up there. I want you to uh, figure out or guess where it comes from, all right? Uh, line number one, forget about the crowds, the size of the school, their fancy uniforms, and remember what got you here. Focus on the fundamentals that we've gone over time and time again. All right, that is from what? Hoosiers, Hoosiers. all right, Normandale. All right, next one. Great moments are born from great opportunity, and that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. Anybody? I hear it. Miracle. Herb Brooks' miracle is a story about the U.S. hockey team winning. This is Kurt Russell playing the part of Herb Brooks, but I think in real life Herb Brooks said something like that. But it was kind of the pregame uh, pep talk, motivational talk for the big thing that was coming down the pike. All right, next one. Fighting you may die, running you'll live at least a while, and dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? Movie, Braveheart, of course, paint your face. All right, next one, last one. Uh, this is real life, actually. The other ones were kind of movie scenes. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. How many, wait, wait, how many people know that? Just raise your hand. How many people know that? All right. Uh, go ahead. Somebody out loud. What's that? D-Day. General Dwight Eisenhower on D-Day. Uh, th that was the opening lines of his written kind of challenge to the troops because they had a big thing coming down the pike the next day. You are about to embark upon the great crusade towards which we have striven these many months. And then later he even says, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. Now, what people don't know about that particular one, this, I'm a D-Day freak, so give me a little bit of chance to express my hobby, uh, is that Eisenhower also wrote a letter uh, that he would publish if the, if the invasion failed. So even though he was motivating them, hey, we're going to win this thing, he also knew that failure was a possibility. Now, we have these great lines, great pep talks. What we're going to look at today and over the next few months, and we often don't think about it this way, we're going to look at John 13 to 17. Um, that whole five chapters is one night. It's Thursday night. It's the night Jesus was betrayed. Now, it, it may seem almost trite to call it a pep talk, so I'm not going to call it a pep talk. But John 13 to 17 is five chapters that probably covered no more than maybe four hours of time. And it's Jesus telling his disciples 
kind of what, what's coming next. But the reality was they still were clueless. And we're going to see in the past today, they still didn't know. What, they didn't know that game day was the next day. Um, they didn't know what was coming on. But we're going to spend the next, oh, a number of weeks looking at some of the things, some of what I want to call some of the great lines from what Jesus was saying to his disciples because they had something coming next. They had no idea what they were, going to get in, what they were getting into. But just like any other great motivator, although Jesus, I would say, is the great motivator, capital G, capital M, he was saying things to them that would be uh, meaningful for them beyond just game day. It was the whole rest of their life. So we're going to look at uh, what was going on. Let me just set the context here. It was the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed. It was the Passover feast. So as far as the disciples knew, this was just... Hey, we're going, to have, we're going to celebrate the Passover, the ritual dinner, kind of like Christmas dinner, Easter dinner. This is what we do. Uh, Jesus had come in a few days before Palm Sunday, so all kinds of cheering. It was a big celebration in Jerusalem, but all kinds of cheering for Jesus. They probably thought, okay, something's going to happen now. Jesus is going to show his cards. We're going to kick the Romans out, and that's what was going to... They, they didn't know what was going on. But to them, this is just a regular Passover meal. They don't know what's happening next. Jesus has hinted and said things, but they, like us, are clueless at times. They didn't get what he was trying to say. So here's where John 13 starts out. Uh, go to the next phrase. I'm just gonna, we're just going to read part of John 13, and then I want to focus on one line. I'm not going to tell you what that one line is yet. I want to read this, this part of the story and let you focus on this, and then we're going to see about the one line that I want to focus on in terms of this particular chapter. All right? Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. Okay, Thursday night, Passover meal, time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And let me stop for a second here. The Apostle John wrote this. Uh, it's thought that he probably penned it down, probably over time, but within the next 50 years, probably talking to his friends who were there. So he's narrating this because he was there. All right? So Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them off with a towel he had around them. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter explained, exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, just not my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. Any disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him, and that's what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand why I was doing you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. 
All right, a few more. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you beforehand so that when it happens, you'll believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. So they're sitting around a table, 12-ish, 13-ish of them, a uh, casual meal. He's not like at a pulpit. He's not at a lectern. He's just, it's a meal. And he's looking at him and says, you know, when are you going to betray me? The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. So just freeze frame that moment for a second. They had no idea it was Judas. So they're all looking around the table and maybe they're thinking, well, it's probably Peter. Oh, no, it's going to be Matthew. I don't know. Uh, who knows? The disciple Jesus loved that, when you see that phrase, that's John. Instead of putting his own name in his narration, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. And it wasn't an ego thing. That's just how he described himself. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him. So Peter's probably over here trying, John, 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 ask him who he's talking about. Who's he talking about? So it says the disciple leaned over, John leaned over to Jesus and probably whispered in his ear, who is it? You, know, you can tell me. Who is it? Jesus responded, it's the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. Now, this next part's interesting, I think. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. All right, think about that. Jesus had just said, whoever I give the bread to is going to be the one that's going to betray me. And Jesus does that. And they still don't get it. They, didn't, they still don't know. Since Judas was a treasurer, someone thought Jesus was just telling him to go and pay the bills. You know, pay the food, give money to the poor. So Judas left at once going out into the night. So they still don't know that things are really getting kind of dicey and bad. They don't know that Judas is the one Jesus is talking about. So there's still kind of this, we don't understand why, why you're saying all these things. Um... We don't get it. Now, here's the phrase I want to focus on just today. Brief this morning. Go to the next slide. Second verse. This just kind of caught me when I first read this. The devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Before Jesus says anything, before he embarks on his, you know, D-Day halftime pregame speech... John sets the scene for us by saying, you need to know this to start with, the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And then later in the passage, in the same chapter we just read, it said when Jesus, G Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Okay, this is kind of backstage stuff, behind the curtain stuff. What's going on here? Jesus is about to tell them what's coming up next and how to live life well. But John wants to make sure he tells us there's something else going on here. All right, now back to the original phrase. The word prompted here is kind of, it, it comes from the same word that we would use throw. So it's kind of like Satan had already tossed a thought into Judas's head. Satan had already planted a seed in Judas's mind. Satan had already tossed 
an impression. Um, and that's what's going on here. Now, it wasn't anything like Satan didn't appear to Judas and you know, tell him what to do. It was an impression, a thought, an idea. And Judas, it wasn't like Judas was like, oh, I know this is Satan speaking to me now. I better, you know, Judas probably didn't even know what was going on. The devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And then when it says, when Jesus gave him the, uh, the bread and then he ate it, it said Satan entered into him. And again, that might sound kind of weird language. It's kind of like, okay. But it's, it's in a sense, when we talk about eating the bread and drinking the cup, we're saying we want Jesus to enter into us. So it, was, it wasn't that necessarily, you know, we don't know for sure. We don't know that Satan actually occupied him, but we do know that Satan then had his way. But it seems like there's some kind of space between when he prompted Judas and when Satan actually had control. So maybe there, we don't know. Maybe there was some chance that Judas would relent and change his mind. But back on, this, on the prompt of Judas, and I want to I go to the next slide here after this one. The one thing, uh, a couple things I want to say from this opening part, because this, this whole five chapters is a story, all right? True story. Really happened. It's a story of these ordinary men who became extraordinary, but it's a story of this uh, one sent from God, Jesus. And it's that... It's, it's the day-to-day life stuff. They're having a Passover meal. At that point, nothing overly special. Jesus says a lot of incredible things throughout this chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. A lot of things to encha- encourage people. But the story starts off with this reality, which is true about your story and my story, and that is your story has an enemy. Um, you have an enemy. I have an enemy. Judas had an enemy. Jesus had an enemy, and the Bible tells us the enemy's name is Satan. Now, go to the next slide here. Um, you have an enemy. Now, go to the next one. with this. You guys know this, the weird meter, right? Okay, Satan, the devil. Um, really? I mean, here and now, 2011, really? I mean, does Satan still, is he really real? Was, was John just didn't know what else to say, so he blames it on Satan? Or was there something else really going on here? Is there really an enemy Satan? If we believe the Lord is present among us, is there really some enemy Satan? Is there something called the devil that's trying to destroy your story and my story and destroy the life of Jesus inside of us? And again, I, it, the weird meter goes off because we're like, well, I don't know about that. I mean... Maybe John was watching too many scary movies. I don't know. Maybe something else. Maybe there's another explanation for Judas's behavior. Do we have to attribute it to this thing called devil, Satan, whatever? All right. Um, now, go back one. I'm going to get the weird mirror off because it's, it's, it's kind of annoying me. But anyway, <laughs> it's kind of good. Now, let's talk about this for a second because John says that this is what happened. Satan was prompting Judas. And we might think, well, maybe John was just reading into it. And then John says later, Satan entered into Judas. Well, maybe John was just kind of editorializing. But the reality is if you back up in the Gospel of John and even go forward, Jesus talks clearly about his belief that there is some being called the devil that seeks to destroy people. Here's a couple things Jesus said earlier in the Gospel and then later on in this particular Gospel. He's telling the Pharisees at one point, you belong to your father the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desire. That's a great way to influence people and win friends, right? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus says the devil is the father of lies. He's a real being. John chapter 12, he talks about the time, for the, wor- the, the time for judging the world has come when Satan, the ruler of the world, will be cast out. So Jesus used the word Satan, the ruler of the world. Um, John chapter 16, judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. John chapter 17, he's praying to the Father and says, I'm not asking you to take these people, I'm not asking you to take these people out of the world. I want you to, I want you to protect them from the evil one. So Jesus uses words like Satan, devil, the ruler of this world, and the evil one. So if Jesus believed in the devil and some real dark force presence that would influence people for their destruction, if Jesus believed that and we trust Jesus, then we believe Jesus on this one. And so, what do we do with this? Uh, with the, you know, if you have an enemy, August seventh, two thousand eleven, Satan knows what he wants to do to trip you up. Here's a thing. Here's a phrase I've said before, and you've seen it Exodus before. Any movement toward freedom and life will always be opposed. Satan will do whatever he can to oppose God's desire for you. Satan will do whatever he can to mess you up. To he will. He will prompt you to do things. Okay, now stop for a second there. Satan prompted Judas to do something evil. Satan prompts you and me to do things evil. All right, if we're going to understand the whole story of this last night of Jesus, because he says some really good things about love, joy, and peace, Jesus does. But he also says things like, the world's going to hate you. The world's going to persecute you. One of you will deny me. One of you will betray me. Sometimes the world will actually want to kill you, and they will kill you. So he's saying these really confusing, dark things, but he's also saying, but you're going to have joy like no other. You're going to have peace the world can't give you, and you're going to learn to love each other in a way that's going to blow the world away because they don't want to understand how you can love each other that much. And so if that's what Jesus wants for me and you, Jesus said he's going to give us joy that will be overflowing. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if I did, I said, who, who has experienced overflowing joy lately or who, who's experienced overflowing joy on a regular basis? My guess is most of us be like, well, I'm not really sure I'm there yet. And then Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to have peace, and it's going to be a kind of peace the world can't give and can't take away. It's the same thing. How many of us would say, well, I think I got that. I've, I've got that. I got that peace. The reality is, most of us have signed up for this thing called the Christian life, and it's not cashing out right now for us. And we're not quite sure why, and we don't even want to admit that to anybody. I mean, one of my favorite uh, quotes from a man named Oswald Chambers, who was a great pastor, godly man, missionary 150 years ago, one of the things he said one time in his life was, uh, either this whole Christianity thing is a sham, or I've got to hold the wrong end of the stick. Because and his whole point was Jesus talks about overflowing joy and unending peace, and I'm not getting that. I'm not feeling that. So what's going wrong? And the reality is the explanation for that is that you have an enemy who will do everything he can to destroy that in you. Now, 
I'm going to go to the next slide here because here's the question of the morning. And this may sound kind of odd or direct or weird, or the weird meter may really go off to you. Here's the question I'll ask you about your life right now. All right? What is Satan successfully or unsuccessfully saying to you lately? What's he prompting in you? It's probably not a thought most of us have pondered much. Um, probably not a thought most of us want to ponder. But let me give you a couple examples, all right? Just this week, my wife challenged me on a certain behavior, a certain, man, a certain way I was doing something. I, being the uh, loving, gentle, godly husband I am, didn't like it. And I argued with her about it. And what she was saying was true. And this is what I think is true about Satan. Satan knows how to talk real fast. Because what my wife said was true, but in my mind, I'm like, she, you know, my wife doesn't love me. And then I'm to the point where my wife must hate me because she's telling me something that's really hard for me to hear. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I know my wife doesn't hate me. I know she's not being arrogant. Where is that thought coming from? Is that God telling me that? Is that me? Assuming my wife is arrogant or she doesn't like me or is there another voice in the equation? And I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about. When all of a sudden you're, you are thinking something, you are pondering something that you know is not true, accurate reflection of reality about another person, about life or whatever, and you don't know where that came from. It's not God. It's not God telling me my wife is being blah, blah, blah. And it's not me, because I believe God's given me a good heart, so I don't think I'm really thinking my wife is this evil ogre. So if it's not God and it's not my voice speaking, is there some other voice prompting into my head trying to twist my understanding of reality? And I'd say, yeah, sure. But we don't always see that. You know, the Bible in the Old Testament, there's a point where it says Satan incited King David to do something evil. King David, a man after God's own heart, and Satan could kind of suggest and prompt him to do things? Judas has spent three years with Jesus. Is it possible that Satan can do that to people like us? How else can we explain a lot of our own behaviors? Here's two, here, I'll give you two things and then we'll be done here. Two things that I think Satan loves to say, and everything he says is a theme and variation of two primary lies. All right? Satan is the father of lies. We don't know what lie Judas was believing. All right, we don't know that. We know Judas got 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. But I don't really, it's not clear that Judas just needed the cash. You know, he needed to make a car payment or an ox cart payment or whatever. We don't know. But some, in some form, Judas was believing a lie that Satan had prompted and planted inside of him that caused him to act in an evil way toward Jesus. All right. Lie number one that Satan loves to tell us, and perhaps this was a lie that Satan was prompting Judas with, was God is holding out. Um, think of the original lie in the Garden of Eden when Satan was telling Adam and Eve, really, if you don't eat the fruit, if you eat the fruit, God says he's going to do what? No, God's just holding out on you because if you ate the fruit, you would have an awareness of knowledge and life that you would, use, it would just really excite you and God just doesn't want that for you. And 
Most of Satan's lies, at least half of them, are a theme and variation on that. God is holding out on you. God's not... Look at the person you married. Boy, you could have done better than that. God must be holding out on you. Look at the fact that you're not married yet. God must be holding out on you. So there's other ways you can meet those needs you have. It may not be the ways God's... But God's holding out on you. Yeah, look at, look at your financial situation. And yeah, God says to tithe. But hey, you, look at what's going on in the rest of your life. God's holding out. So you don't have to really obey God. Because God really doesn't have totally good thoughts toward you. So he's holding out on you. Again, we don't know what Judas was believing. There's some people that would, would guess that Judas was thinking Jesus wasn't doing, the, doing it right. He wanted Jesus to come in and kind of military ruler and kick the Romans out. Some people think that Judas was trying to get Jesus to play his hand. How many times do we, how many times do I try to get God to play his hand? Well, God's not doing it right, so I better help him out and I'll take control of this situation. Again, we don't know that was Judas's thing. Could have been. But we often have this sense of God's holding out on me. God's holding out. For some of us, that's the lie that you're hearing. Um, God didn't give me the right spouse. God didn't give me the right job. God didn't give me the right money. God didn't give me the right health. God didn't give me the right body. God didn't give me the right... All these things that God's held out on you. He's not giving you good things. Therefore, since God's not doing his end of the deal, you don't have to do your end of the deal, and obedience is optional for you. And a lot of us go there in our minds. Lie number two that Satan successfully and sometimes hopefully unsuccessfully says to us is Satan loves to accuse us. Um, I don't know what you're recording in your mind. I was going to say tape recording, but that's kind of so old-fashioned. I'll say, now what's the MP3 that plays in your head when you goof something up? Some of you might say, oh, I really messed that one up. Or I really blew that. I'm such an idiot. I had a friend of mine, that was kind of what they always, I'm such an idiot. I'm such an idiot. Is that God saying that? Is that you saying that? Or is there another voice trying to tell you, accuse you about how bad you are as a Christian, how bad you are as a dad, how bad you are as a wife, how bad you are as an employee, how bad you are as a human being? Oh, I really screwed that one up. That was really stupid. I know some of you have those things going on in your head because you're human like I am. Look at, look at uh, the whole situation with Job. When things were going bad for Job, his friends were being that voice. Well, you must have messed up somewhere, Job. You must have sinned somewhere. You're doing something wrong, man. Because God doesn't withhold. In this case, you're doing something wrong. You're messing up. And it's the voice of accusation and condemnation. So before we even look over the next few weeks more and more into what Jesus is saying about how we can succeed with joy and peace and love in life, we've got to acknowledge that there is an enemy that will oppose anything God wants to do moving you toward joy and peace and love. D-Day would have made no sense without, no, without the Germans. Eisenhower's speech would be meaningless with no Germans. Norman Dale's halftime speech or pregame speech was meaningless without an opponent. Herb Brooks' pregame talk was meaningless without the Russian opponents. And Mel Gibson, William Wallace's 
pre-battle talk was meaningless if there wasn't an enemy in the field. So Jesus is giving a talk about how you and I can live life to the fullest, can have joy overflowing, can have peace that the world can't take away from you in a real practical, everyday kind of way. But we're not going to grab his words accurately and understand them correctly in our lives until we understand that Satan will oppose anything God wants to do. And he loves to prompt things in you. He loves to prompt you to believe things that aren't true about God, about life, and about what God wants to do in your life. And I'm not, I'm not saying, okay, spend the week trying to think, okay, was that Satan? Be aware, and maybe God will give you some insight this week about some lie that's been driving your behavior that you need to realize, huh, maybe I've been believing something that Satan's been throwing into my head, and I need to acknowledge that as a lie and realize that's not true. Because John later on in life, last slide here, John later on in his life, he wrote 1 John, whoever wrote, the guy who wrote John also wrote 1 John, also wrote Revelation. But one of the things he says years later is the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus, because his presence is inside of us, because the Lord of heaven's armies is here among us, he's able then to fight for us. He's able then, I mean, literally this situation with my wife this week where I felt like she was being a really mean person, but she wasn't. There was a point, and this is, it was a new kind of thing for me. I actually stopped for a moment, and I, mem- and I remember thinking, huh, I wonder what Satan's doing right here because I think he's twisting my thoughts and turning my wife into my enemy when really what she's saying to me is meant for my well-being and meant for my joy and peace. And, and it was a fraction of a second that I felt like God rescued me from Satan prompting me and letting me let it affect how I treated my wife, how I treated my kids, and how I treated everybody else. Look for those moments this week where it's a moment of a flash where it's like, wait a minute, freeze frame. Is there something going on behind the curtain? Is there, is there a way that Satan's trying to mess up this situation, mess up my marriage, mess up my life, mess up my friendship with this person? And my guess is there, there's many moments this week, but my prayer is that God will help us all see maybe one or two this week. Like, ah, you know, Satan was active in this situation, and I can see how that really kind of mess. And Jesus, help me. Help me align my life about what I know is to be true. Um, let's pray. Jesus, um, as we look in just the how you challenge us to be men and women who are full of joy, full of life, full of peace, and how so distant that seems for most of us, how far, far away that seems. Uh, God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, would you give us insight this week? Would you help us see the ways in which Satan really is active in prompting, accusing, and lying to us? And deliver us from obsession with Satan, but at the same time, uh, give us awareness and give us awareness about how to fight at those moments and how to acknowledge, Jesus, what you said about life and joy and peace is true. And uh, would you give us the ability to take our thoughts captive um, and give them to you, Jesus. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.